The content here is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. Please consult a healthcare professional with any medical questions and concerns. If you are experiencing an emergency or need immediate help, call 911. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a therapeutic relationship. I just get so angry. It's hard to sit still. I don't want to be this way. My brain just feels all scrambled. Hello and welcome to Scrambled. I'm your co-host Chad Douglas. And I'm Nikki Shields. And this is episode 44, Sensory Processing Disorders. And you know, Nikki, we kind of joke, sometimes we try to get cute and creative with the with the names of the episodes and sometimes we just lay it straight out for you and we wanted to do this one to go, you know what we're talking about in this episode? Sensory processing disorders. We're just going to keep it simple, stupid, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, we have a guest with us this uh, for this episode Good. and I would like to introduce her. Um, Lene, an occupational therapist, is here to talk with us about what sensory processing disorder is, what it looks like, how it can affect your kids, and uh, hopefully a little bit of like what to do about it. Very nice. Well, welcome, Lene. We're so glad that you were able to join us. Yeah, thank you for this opportunity. So my first question to you both is going to be kind of a simple one because, so if you're a longtime listener to this podcast, you know that Nikki is a behavioral health therapist. What is the difference between that and an occupational therapist? Yeah. So occupational therapy and behavioral health counseling can overlap sometimes, but for the most part, they're two very separate and distinct things. So for occupational therapy, we focus on activities of daily living, which are things that are completed every single day, as well as instrumental activities of daily living, which are often completed every single day. So some examples of that would be activities of daily daily living would include dressing, bathing, feeding, toileting, um, functional mobility, and then instrumental activities of daily living would include things like housework and chores and traveling skills and school organizational skills and cooking and cleaning and laundry and those types of things. Occupational therapy is also very different depending on the age of the person that we're working with. Those activities of daily living and instrumental activities of daily living is something that's fundamental for all ages, but for pediatrics, we often focus on meeting developmental milestones, especially when it comes to fine motor skills and motor skills in general, as well as visual processing skills, sensory processing skills. And then in the adult world, Um, They may also work on orthopedic things. They may work on low vision strategies. Um, There's a wide variety of things that occupational therapists can do. Okay. Well, thank you for explaining because when I hear occupational therapist, I hear like I've hurt my shoulder and I've got to go through. Mm -hmm. I guess that's a physical therapist though, right? That's a a completely different animal. That can also be an occupational therapist. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're absolutely right about that too. And we do oftentimes work on orthopedic issues or strengthening, especially of the upper extremities. That is something that falls under the occupational therapy realm. Yes. And when I remember when I had that that freak sledding accident and I broke my finger and yeah. had to go to the doctor like 23 times. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I saw an occupational therapist for therapy afterwards. I remember mm-hmm. thinking, oh, I'm going to be referred for physical therapy. And, and they were like, no, we're going to send you to OT. And I was like, oh, this is fun. This is a whole new thing. But yeah, so occupational therapists do a lot. They do. And that's the beauty of the profession is that it, it's so broad that you can do so many different things with it. And another area that occupational therapy has is there is a mental health component to it in that we oftentimes work on anxiety things and strategies and sensory calming strategies and things like that. And also establishing roles and routines so that people can get through their their days as well. Interesting. So what is the correlation then between an anxiety disorder and some sort of occupational therapy work? I would say that's very high. And as we start talking about sensory processing disorder, since that's the topic of today, I would say it's very high and highly correlated with that. Um, But I think you can also argue that even with those orthopedic conditions, there's an anxiety component that also plays into it. So I would say most of the time there's an anxiety component somewhere, somehow that's impact, can impact therapy. I remember having a little bit of like an identity complex when I first, you know, observed occupational therapy taking place. It was shortly after I became a therapist um, at the place that I work currently. And I, I was observing some occupational therapy sessions as part of my like orientation. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, like there's so much overlap. What really is a counselor compared to some of these other types of therapists? And mm-hmm. so I, I remember that being like really just mind blowing that that there's so much similarity in the, the things, that, you know, and I, I, 
I think to categorize it, like counseling really is like the social emotional side. Um, and so whereas, you know, we might do some physical things in our work, it really is focused on like the thoughts and the feelings and the behaviors. Mm-hmm. And then occupational therapy is, of course, on, on all of the things that Lene just listed. Just to throw out one example, I have a friend who has a child with anxiety. And uh, in through some of the, the assessments and stuff, he then had to go see an occupational therapist because the way he held a pencil or handwriting mm-hmm. was, I, I don't know, I don't want to say was off, but it was something wasn't there, mm-hmm. wasn't right with the, the way he held the pencil or the pen or the way he did his handwriting because of his anxiety mm-hmm. disorder. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And there's oftentimes that kids in particular will struggle at school because they look around the classroom and they see that they are different and they can, they notice the differences in them. And then that, of course, increases anxiety as well. So sometimes you don't really know which one came first. Did the deficit come first and then the anxiety or the anxiety first and then the deficit? Sometimes it's hmm. just kind of hard to tell. Okay. Fascinating stuff. Okay. Let's start uh, into our episode then. <laughs> we, <laughs> we said this was about sensory processing disorders and we've uh, not necessarily gone off on a tangent. It's some good background information and it, it clears my head up a little bit, hopefully the listener as well. So very simple question. What is a sensory processing disorder? A sensory processing disorder, it's really an informal classification of symptoms that involve our sensory processing systems. So this includes the five senses that we all learned about in school, like touch, sight, hearing, taste, smell, but it also includes two more, which are all about movement. And when one or more of them gets out of whack, so to speak, they all sort of kind of get out of whack. And then you start seeing some symptoms in all of the different areas. And the reason why I'm calling it informal is because it did not make it into the DSM-5 as an actual diagnostic code. So I want to throw that out there, that it is an informal diagnosis. It's meant Mm. to help people to understand more about their child or about themselves if they're an adult, for teachers to understand what they can do to help with them in the classroom, and then also to help anybody else that's involved in the child's care, like a grandparent or a neighbor or anybody else that's a a part of their village, to help understand what needs they have and what they can do to help them. And Lene mentioned the DSM, and so I, mm-hmm. I we may have mentioned that in a previous episode, but the DSM is the Diagnostical and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Conditions, and so it's kind of the the go to for you know making sense of you know diagnoses and and figuring out you know what's going on for someone. And so I'm actually like kind of frustrated as you as you say that like sensory processing didn't make it in there because I've seen it in action. Like I, I know that this is a real mm-hmm. thing that impairs kids, and and being able to kind of formally label that. I think would be really cool. Are there disadvantages? Like what are there problems with it not being in the book? How does that get in the way for an occupational therapist? I think like you at first, I was a little bit disappointed as well too, because I felt like it is important. And I think if you talk to any parent that has a child with sensory issues, they're going to tell you that it is very, very real. And I think any adult that had these childhood issues would also echo that as well. So my initial reaction was disappointment. However, when I went back and read the articles as to why it didn't make it in there, it did make sense to me. And basically what they said is, is that they're not denying that there's not sensory processing issues or difficulties or even a disorder. They're not really denying that. What they're saying is, is that it's hard to find clear lines between sensory processing and anxiety disorders and ADHD Mm. and other things. And that sometimes you can have a little combination of, of everything. And it's hard to see what fits in each sort of box and then what's left over in addition to that. How do you feel your clients take this? Do you feel like the parents or the village, as you say, take it as, as you know, it's, we've talked a lot about anxiety and people not understanding it when it's, when, when you live with it, it's very, very real. So from your perspective, Lene, when you see this and go, okay, this, this child has a, a, like a hearing disorder or, or a touch of feel disorder, do you find that people are receptive to it and go, oh, okay, that makes sense? Or do they kind of push back? So I feel like parents are often relieved when they hear this mm. because it's a name for what they're seeing and experiencing every single day. And in my job that I have currently, I have the role as a basically kind of a consultant where I do this on a regular basis, where I identify these things amongst other things as well, and then provide consultation on top of it on what they can do to help their child in the home, the school, and the community environments. And what I'm finding is that parents are like, oh yeah, that's why they do that. That's why my mornings are terrible. I had one mom just recently tell me, I love my child, but I absolutely hate 
our mornings. It is the worst part of my day. We both go to school or go to school and go to work. We both been crying. It takes me till about 10 o'clock in the morning before I recover and I can actually be a good employee because I'm so frustrated because of my morning routine with my child. Yeah. Uh, relatable. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. Uh, and, and because I'm an overthinker for like the last seven minutes, I've been thinking, I said diagnostical. Like I made a word up. I When we were talking about the DSM, I said diagnostical and statistical. It's just diagnostic and statistical. I just want to put that out there. Uh, I'm sorry. So I've corrected myself and can move on now. <laughs> Thank you for that, Nikki. We, we appreciate that. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about some more common disorders, um, sensory processing disorders. What do you see? With sensory processing, like I mentioned, we have these seven senses. So I think it would be helpful if I kind of went through each one and talked about the different spectrums of symptoms that you could possibly see. Okay. You know, to use fancy terms, we use hypersensitive and we use hyposensitive, but basically it's craving it or avoiding it. And then anything that happens in between there. So when we, when we talk about our sense of touch or tactile processing, you can have kids that are so sensitive to clothing that they know when it is a, an 80% blend cotton shirt with a 20% of something else and will refuse to wear it. And they can't read. They have no idea, don't know it till they put it on. And then they melt and have to pull it off and take it off. And again, that kind of goes into that one mom that I was talking about how miserable it is for her in the mornings. So there are kids that can't tolerate tags. There's kids that can't tolerate seams in their socks. My patient this morning wears his socks inside out and wears his mother's socks every day. He's six um, because he likes the feel of that better. And when I think about my socks, I have to say I'm pretty particular about my socks, but I want them to be tighter fitting and things like right. that. So that one I can't quite figure out why he likes, but that is something that works for him. Right. Also, these kids can also have trouble with tolerating grooming tasks and things like that. So washing their face, for instance, or tipping their head backwards to get their hair washed or water from the shower. There are some kids that describe that as needles on their face. Huh. They also may avoid textures and touching things with their bare hands. There's kids that won't touch Play-Doh or Silly Putty or shaving cream. That's really a big one. Or hmm. foam soap. That is a big one too in public restrooms and things. And there's kids that maybe don't even walk barefoot in the sand too or maybe have trouble with walking barefoot in general. So there's that side of the spectrum to the opposite side of the spectrum where they can't get enough touch. So these are the kids oh. that are your fidgeters and they're touching everything around them. And <laughs> I absolutely love these kids that come into my room and they're touching all of my stuff and they're feeling my pen and they grab my name tag. You know, They just can't get enough of those textures. And I have to say, I'm gonna tell you that I am a fidgeter myself. and. A lot of people don't realize this, but I wear a fidget ring every single day and frankly, don't really think I can live without it. I really can't go to work, sit in a meeting, go to a continuing ed course or sit in church without it. And it's not because I'm not engaged or because I don't want to be there. It's because I just have this overall need to fidget. And that is something that really, really helps me. Okay. Fidget ring. So I'm going to ask, cause I think I've seen them before, but is mm -hmm. it just something that you just, because I have a, a wedding ring and I'll just sit there and turn it. Mm -hmm. Is that the same thing? Did I just get like a $7 fidget ring compared to whatever you spent on it? Yeah. Or do you have something that's specifically a fidget ring? Yeah. And I think that if that works for you, that's absolutely perfect. But sometimes people need a little bit more. So I have one fidget ring that is a solid ring and then it has a piece that goes over the top of it and it spins. Okay. And then I have another one that is three rings together that slides up and slides back down. And I can't tell you which one I like better. I kind of just find the one that matches my outfit better, frankly, um, because both of them seem to work more for me. But just fidgeting with my wedding ring just isn't quite enough and doesn't quite fit my needs. Okay. Interesting. I, I like to... <laughs> <laughs> I like the feel. I don't know how to say this. When I eat fruit roll-ups, I like the feel of the back of the fruit roll-up on my lips. And people make fun of me all the time because I like rub it across my lips before I eat it. And they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't know. I just like it. Yes. yes. Do you have any open appointments, Lene? <laughs> no kidding. You know, you're talking about sensory stuff. And I know there are several other areas to get to. But what I mm -hmm. something I just want to point out is I think a lot, I, I'm guessing that a lot of people 
probably have sensory things that they maybe don't didn't recognize as a disorder or they maybe have learned to cope with over time and and like but it still bothers them like I'm sitting here and I, I brought a pair of socks with me to record because I can't stand how my feet feel when they're bare for very long and so I'm like I'm not gonna put them on now but I know I'm gonna need them so I've got my socks and I was as you were talking about sock stuff I'm like oh I totally have sensory stuff with my socks so I, I bet a lot of people listening are like oh my goodness I have a sensory thing Yes, yes. And I think that you're absolutely right. And there's some people that have sensory issues. And then there's some people that have a sensory processing disorder. And to me, the difference is, and is that, you know, sensory issues are something that we can kind of work through. It's not something that prevents us from doing those daily activities I was talking about, like dressing, bathing, laundry, cooking, cleaning, toileting, all those kinds of things. It's not something that necessarily impacts our daily life. Or if it does, we kind of have some workarounds for it, kind of like my fidget ring for me. Whereas the disorder, I would call that more when it's a true problem and it affects those things. So Mm -hmm. in the case of the mom where the morning is, you know, terrible for her, that would be more on the disorder side of things. Mm -hmm. Or the kid that's a really, really picky eater, which we're going to talk about in just a little bit, where it's truly impacting the nutrition that they put in their body. I would call that more of the disorder, you know? So I do think that, again, it's a spectrum of things. It's a spectrum of symptoms. And I think that we all have very, we can have varying degrees of those things. Let's move right on in then to the the picky eaters. Let's talk about the oral processing system. So again, this can be those kids that are super incredibly picky. And this can be, I've worked with kids that have only eaten five foods and all of them were in the white family. I mean, we're talking like really, really restricted foods and you can have um, difficulties with tolerating the texture of the food. So it could be mashed potatoes. That seemed to be, that seems to be one people don't like. And I think we can all understand like a cottage cheese type of texture, but like mashed potatoes, that's kind of a staple in America. I think you would say that's something that people tend to really, really like or applesauce or purees or things like that. They can't tolerate that. But it also could be the chewy things too. So it could be like meats, for instance. There are a lot of kids that will eat processed meats like deli meat and chicken nuggets from McDonald's. Mm-hmm. But there's a those kids are not eating your steaks, your pork chops, your real chicken that you put in the air fryer, those types of things, those are the things that they're not going to eat or may not eat. So how do you know then as a parent when to say something to a professional that that they might have a disorder or that something's not right? Because I, I consider myself, I was a picky eater, but I wasn't that picky of an eater. I like bologna. Like I would eat bologna over anything you put in front of me. Now I regret it and go, man, I missed out on all these years of all this great food. Mm-hmm. But I think kids by and large are picky eaters. I mean, it's new things they're trying. So at what point does the parent say, something's something we need to have a better conversation here? And I think you're absolutely right. And that's a very good point to make because kids in general do tend to be picky eaters. And oftentimes the reason why they're picky, and because it, it's not the kids I'm talking about here today, but oftentimes the reason why maybe typical developing kids are picky is because that's the only thing that they can control in their day. So you think about a kid, we tell them what to do all day long at home and at school and where you're going to go next and what you're going to do next and what you're going to eat and what you're going to do. So one of the only things that they can control is what they put in their mouth. Hmm. That is oftentimes why kids do that. When I think it becomes a problem is when they are avoiding whole groups of foods. So if you have a kid that's, again, only eating processed meats, but not any of those other things, or not eating any vegetables, or not eating any fruits, or if they tend to you know, avoid certain types of textures, kind of like we were talking about, those smooth purees or your chunky textures or things like that. And then also, if you ever see a decline in your child's eating where they were eating certain things and now they're not eating certain things, that's also a big red flag that you need some extra help with that too. And of course, anytime that you're worried about nutrition or they're not gaining weight or things like that, that's when you know you have a true problem. And I assume, like we've talked in past episodes, the first conversation should be with your primary care provider. 
Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And it's also something to check out too, because sometimes kids are more picky at home than they are at school or at grandma's house. So, you know, watching what your kid eats in all different environments is also really important too. And that will help you see if it's more on that behavioral side of things, they're kind of trying to control it, or if there is a sensory component to it. And oftentimes it's both, you know, absolutely that can, that happens every single day where it's both things, um, but that can help you figure out exactly which way to go with things. Oral processing difficulties can also include having difficulties tolerating brushing their teeth too. Sometimes it's the bristles on the brush. Sometimes it's the toothpaste. Sometimes it's the flavor. Mint oftentimes is too spicy for kids. And again, it might be the mildest mint, but for whatever reason, it's very hard for them to tolerate. Um, It could also be if it's a vibrating toothbrush or a regular toothbrush. There's actually a lot of different toothbrushes and different toothpastes that a lot of parents have to try to find the right one that's going to work. And even then, I will say this is something that Occupational Therapy Services works on regularly is getting Mm. to tolerate brushing their teeth. That really does seem to be a big thing. So on the flip side, you know, we have we've already talked about the kids that are more of the avoiders, but there's also the kids that can't stop putting things in their mouth that they shouldn't be. So things that are non-food related. And this is besides uh, older than toddlers, because you you get to a certain age where everything goes in the mouth. So we're talking elementary school kids Mm -hmm. ish. Okay. And older. Okay. As well too. So kind of talking about a little bit older than I'll talk about what some adults do sometimes too. So they may put their fingers in their mouth. They may put their shirt collar in their mouth. That's a big one. Their shirt sleeves go in their Mm -hmm. mouth. There are kids that chew holes in their shirts on a regular basis. There are kids that are chewing on their straws. So if you think about um, sippy cups that have the straws or Mm -hmm. juice boxes or all that, you can tell when people are seekers because those things are all chewed up. Mm-hmm. And they another one for like adolescents, what I've been seeing lately is they they love those hoodies. Have you guys noticed? Yeah. How much yeah. they, the You're going to say the drawstrings, them. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they're in their mouth and they're chewing on it the whole time. And yeah. one of the teenagers that I just had recently, uh, I said, you know, why do you have that string in your mouth? And she's like, oh, gosh. She's like, well, I just figured out that if I have this in my mouth, I can just focus better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great. That's some fantastic self-reflection. I love it that you found a way to kind of work through it. <laughs> but the germaphobe in me is having a hard time with this. <laughs> well, and it's my son borrowed some of my hoodies and I get them back and then I put them on. I'm like, what the heck happened to my drawstrings? Because <laughs> I'm like, you're like, gross. I know. Well, and it looks like now I've chewed them, you know? Yes. Don't let anybody borrow your your hoodies. That's that's <laughs> no, no. learn the hard way. Yes, exactly. But it also makes sense. Like you said, the one um, female you talked about that it just helps them focus. And I think you're right. Even with your fidget ring, it's just something that gets their mind mm-hmm. off of not focusing to focus on. And then they can do other things. They can do their homework. They can listen in class mm-hmm. because that sensory processing disorder is being taken care of. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And oftentimes we'll use things like Chewies is what they're called. And there's a lot of different products that they have on there. And I say it's in my career, I've been doing this for, I think, 19 years now. Boy, the world has really grown in this area. There's some really cute things out there right now. So you can wear a necklace with this cute Lego brick on it or a lightsaber. Or there could be these cute, you can have friendship rings or friendship necklaces that are chewies. There's all kinds of really cute options that they have now for those kids that put things in their mouth. And then also gum. Don't forget about how great gum is too. It is a fantastic tool as well. And if you think about when you're driving a car and you're maybe at night in the middle of the night and you're really, really tired and how just popping a piece of gum in your mouth can really help you to feel more alert. Provided it's, it's allowed, because some schools don't allow it. And that's one of those things where I'm just like, I get it why it's not allowed, but I'm also like, come on, that's an easy fix to so many problems. Exactly. And I think too, going back to, we talk a lot about like caveman days and fight or flight. I learned recently that eating is calming because animals will only eat if they if they're not afraid of something, because right. it's just the, the, the motion of the jaw going up and down goes, I'm in a calm place. I can relax and feed myself. So it's kind of the same concept there with gum. Absolutely. And pacifiers. You think about pacifiers too. Oh, yeah. it's that same that same model too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It can be very organizing for the sensory processing system. And it has been shown to increase focus. Let's move on now and talk about auditory issues. Um, the one that, the two that come to my mind are ones that just 
folks who can't stand loud noises and, and crowded places. And then on the other one, uh, misophonia, and that's the one where it's like the sound of people chewing or breathing mm-hmm. or making some other face sound <laughs> <laughs> face yeah. sound how many, yeah, how many sounds does a face make i mean several if you have misophonia it's, it's a well i yeah. fair point <laughs> yeah and so you have those kids or adults that are really really sensitive to sounds so they may cover their ears they may notice sounds that nobody else notices so i don't notice those people eating those sounds that you're talking about those aren't things that i'm typically processing but there are a lot of people that are really sensitive to those things or clocks ticking or fluorescent lights or just lights in general humming or mm-hmm. fans or heaters or things like that. Uh, also, um, pins clicking in a classroom. Oh, my goodness. That seems to be a big one, too, is something that kids are um, really sensitive to, especially in the classroom. So they can be really sensitive, get really overstimulated. And we'll talk about more uh, about overstimulation at the end here, because it kind of puts everything together. It's not okay. just the sounds, it's kind of putting it all together. But there's also the the flip side of the spectrum here, where these are kids that can't stop making noises. So like they'll be using their pencil and they'll be drawing a line from A to B and they just can't stop making noises the entire time and sounding like a car. Or they may have to talk themselves through tasks. They just can't be quiet. And if there's any teachers listening right now, they're going to be nodding their heads because they know exactly they can think of 10 kids in their head right this second that are constantly making noises in their classroom. And they also just may really like loud music and prefer that high intensity of those sounds. Oh, interesting. Okay. As with a lot of stuff that Nikki always says, Lenny, I I find this stuff fascinating because I think the human brain is just so fascinating. And I I get because I've been there with the mom who says the the mornings are so ugly and and, ours have been actually very good lately, but I get it. And it's so frustrating when you're in the moment, but it's just fascinating the way the mind works for some people. And, and even when you say there's two sides of everything, like the, the folks who don't like the loud sounds, and then there's those that like the loud sounds that they thrive on it. It's just, I don't know. I'm fascinated. Yeah. And you can be avoiding in one area and then be seeking in another area, which also doesn't really make sense, right? But that's how our amazing brain is, is it, it doesn't mm-hmm. quite make sense and it makes us have to think and problem solve every single day. And that's exactly what I was just going to ask you is, can you, can you be like oversensitive one area and undersensitive in another? Because I feel like with our oldest kiddo, she, she was always like undersensitive to touch and would like literally bounce off the walls. Like that's a real thing that she Mm -hmm. does still. Mm -hmm. Um, but like, overly sensitive to smell, like can smell anything, can can recognize a smell from a hundred yards and yes. things the rest of us can't smell. And so it's like under and over at the same time in different senses. And I can't imagine how confusing that would be like taking information in like that. Absolutely. And b- before we continue with other sensory processing issues, I'm just kind of curious, and I hope I'm not putting the cart before the horse there, Nikki, is <laughs> through occupational therapy, then how can you help these kids and adults deal with these disorders? Yeah, so it's definitely going to depend on the age of the person. So when it comes to kids under the age of eight-ish, there are some certain strategies that we can do that we can actually help kids to process sensory information more appropriately, especially when it comes to vestibular and proprioception input, which we haven't quite talked about yet. Those are areas that we can definitely intervene in and kind of help to write the path, so to speak. When they are... um, really avoiding. Sometimes we also have to use exposure therapy. So helping them to get used to things. So if it is a food or a sound or something like that, taking tiny, tiny baby steps just to get them to tolerate it in the room or tolerate it on their plate, if we're talking about food, obviously, or getting it to their mouth or tolerating the feel of it in their mouth. So there are many, many steps that go into that exposure therapy piece of it that can be one of our strategies that we use just depending on the child. When they get a little bit older and they can be more self-reflective. So I find this can be eight-year-olds. I've met some really self-reflective eight-year-olds, but oftentimes it's more like your 10 to 12-year-olds or 10 and older. It's more about teaching them about sensory processing and helping them to understand their body so they know what they can do to help themselves to get through class or to get through quiet times or the airplane or wherever that it might be. And I think that that is a strategy that we always want to strive for. We always want to get there because that's what adults do that are successful that have a sensory processing disorder or have sensory processing issues like Nikki and I, is we have figured out 
about what we need to do to help ourselves so that we can still be high functioning adults. Like you and Nikki, did you not miss or did you not hear the fruit roll up? <laughs> I think right I need to be in your club. There's three of us in our sensory <laughs> yes, thing. That's true. That's true. So <laughs> what can happen then if parents ignore this or they choose not to, to get their kiddos some help? So oftentimes it results in behavioral issues. And okay. it's usually when parents reach out. So this can be behaviors at school where they become significantly overstimulated by things that are happening in the classroom. And if we just sit and talk about a classroom for just a second. And, you know, obviously I have a huge respect for teachers. So this Mm -hmm. is to no disrespect to them or anything at all, but classrooms in general are very, very overstimulating. Yeah. Have you guys been in the classroom lately as an adult? Yes. Yes. It's an experience. I had Mm -hmm. to cover um, for another occupational therapist in the school setting. And I was like, wow, this is overstimulated overstimulating. And I had to drive home without the radio on on the way home just because there was so much information going on in there. So you think about the hallways, right? There's things plastered all over the sides of the hallway. And there's oftentimes things hanging down from the ceiling. Plus there's all kinds of noises in there and there's people talking and you can hear a little bit from this classroom and a little bit from that classroom as you're kind of walking down the hall. Then you go into the classroom and there is stuff all over the walls. And I know why they do that. I get it. We want our kids to learn, right? Any which way we can. So we're going to put it all over the walls and the ceilings and everything. However, for our sensory processing kids, it can be just too much just from that visual side of things. Then we have the sounds, you know, Hmm. you guys remember the sound of a art box dropping on the floor and the pencils all falling out? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can still remember that sound too. Do you know how many times that happens in a day when you're trying to sleep? <laughs> so many times. And then again, by movement too. So if the person in front of you, you know, moves over to fidget with their pen or moves over to do this, you also are distracted by those things. So there's just so many things that are overstimulating about, you know, classrooms and being in a group or a crowd of people or Walmart for that matter, or any sort of store that, you know, it involves all of your sensory systems all of your seven senses that can just be too much. And sometimes people just need to break from that too. We are more than 30 minutes into this episode. And I know you explained it at the top of it, but now I get the correlation between sensory processing disorder and anxiety. Mm-hmm. When you mentioned going into stores and stuff or, or PE mm-hmm. class or the cafeteria at the high school or junior high school or even elementary school, I mean, it, there's, there's just a lot. And if you're sensitive to that, I get it. How do we get other people to get it? It's about just education and just Mm -hmm. getting it out there and helping people to understand. And I will say this is something that I am proud of in my profession of, again, doing this for about 19 years is that I spent, you know, the first probably 15 years of my career teaching people about sensory processing, helping people to understand why these concepts are so important and kind of putting a label on it. But I do feel like in the past, you know, three or four years, I feel like people are starting to get it. I feel like more and more people are recognizing it. I feel like teachers are putting sensory strategies in the classroom without anybody telling them about it. I feel like they're getting it. And I think we're seeing more flex seating and we're seeing more movement options in the classroom. And I'm actually quite proud of where we are now. And of course, there's more work to do. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But I am pleased with how we have done with advocating for our kids. And and I want to echo like, my first introduction to sensory processing was like early on when I started working with young kids, I realized there was so much more going on than just this mental health, you know, diagnosis stuff that I'd learned to work with. And so when I learned that, you know, a kiddo who was struggling and the things that we were trying in counseling weren't necessarily helping with behavioral issues in the classroom or in the home, um, that a referral to OT you know, an evaluation for sensory needs was a huge part of these kids actually starting to experience some improvement and their family members having strategies and tips that they could try. It was so powerful. And I I think it like it revolutionized everything that I was doing with kids because now I knew, oh my gosh, there's this whole other world that we can tap into. There's this whole other view of what's going on. And so um, that was, that was a big deal for me. And so, you know, as you're talking about, there is so much overlap. If you've got a kid who's super distracted by, you know, a toilet flushing three stories away, you know, like that kid is not going to be able to, to pay attention. It's going to look like ADHD, but it might not be, it might, you know, it might be sensory, which leads to my question. 
So <laughs> do you think that there are kids that have been diagnosed with ADHD by a well-meaning mental health clinician, psychiatrist, pediatrician, who really maybe don't have that, who who it's it's really more of a sensory processing issue that just hasn't been uncovered yet? Absolutely. It's something that we see every single day. And I think I would even argue that they probably do have the ADHD, but there's a sensory processing component that would be Mm -hmm. tacked on that as well. And so oftentimes you can have kids with ADHD that have their symptoms for the most part controlled by meds, but then still have these sensory processing things left over. And my argument is, is that, you know, we can do the strategies for ADHD, whether it's invasive or non-invasive, you know, meds or no meds. And you also need the sensory processing things too, because that's also going to help them to organize their sensory processing systems to be more functional in their daily life as well too. So oftentimes you need both of those things. Meds aren't going to just take care of everything. So what's a parent to do if, if they have a child with ADHD, but they hear this episode and they're like, there might be a sensory processing issue going on as well. Like, you know, if you advocate for your child, can you request a referral to an OT? Absolutely. So the best place to start is with your primary care physician is to talk with them and find out if there's an occupational therapist in the area that specializes in these things. And oftentimes I would look for a pediatric occupational therapist, because again, we talked about how there's adults that do occupational therapy or or for adults. And then for pediatrics, it's your pediatric ones that are typically more specialized in that area. And typically sensory processing falls under the occupational therapy realm. But if you are in a more of a rural area or resources are not very strong for you, you may reach out to see if there's a physical therapist or even a speech therapist that may have some of that training too, because they often try to get some, at least some of that training as well too, because it overlaps with their fields as well too. Okay. All right. Let's go back then, Lene, to the senses, because I kind of interrupted you uh, when you were were talking about the auditory and, and oral and stuff. So what are the other three senses that we need to hit on? Okay. So the easiest one to talk about is going to be your olfactory sense system, which is your sense of smell, right? So okay. again, going back to that spectrum, you have your kids that are really sensitive to smells. I mean, I have worked with kids that throw up after their mom puts puts a pot roast in the oven or hmm. kids that can't stand cleaning smells or they can't stand bathroom smells or or things like that. And they may even avoid foods just because of their smell. That is something that happens quite frequently, again, with those picky eaters that we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, you can have the kids that can't get enough smells. Have you ever seen kids that are constantly smelling objects or things Mm -hmm. before they, they might smell it before they eat it. They might, you know, smell something before they interact with it or before they play with it or anything like that, or that don't notice any sort of smells. There are some people that don't even notice that there is a skunk outside or whatever. Hmm. So um, that I find that kind of interesting too, that it can be such a, a wide variety of symptoms. Yeah, that's, again, fascinating stuff. And then the other two symptom, or systems are actually very quite important. So let me back up and just explain this a little bit. Sensory processing really includes our three main senses, which is tactile, vestibular and proprioception. So vestibular and proprioception are fancy words, but what it means is those are all about how we move. It's about our sense of balance, how we know where we are in space. And it's a lot of times where you see your movers and your shakers. It's kind of like our kids that are just constantly on the go and things like that. This is kind of where they fall in that category. And to have sensory processing disorder, you really need to have symptoms in those three areas. And then the auditory, the oral, the olfactory, and the visual systems, those are kind of, you often see those symptoms in there too. But these are the three main areas that you see things. And this is where an occupational therapist is going to start with treatment is with those big systems because they're our biggest ones. Okay. So with vestibular, this includes our sense of balance. And this is um, how we process movement. So we have some kids that are terrified of heights. And when I say mm-hmm. height, I'm not talking about, you know, going up into a tall building and things like that. I'm talking the height of a step. I'm talking about escalators, elevators. Um, It can be going up and down stairs can be terrifying. And oftentimes you'll notice this on the playground. If you just watch a bunch of kids on on the playground, you can see the kids that won't go down the slides or they'll swing for just a little bit. But if it gets too high, they're done. They're off. They're out of there. Um, So anytime they're avoiding that movement, it can be on that side of things. They may also be more sedentary as well and prefer more of those sit down activities. 
Then on the flip side, which is where you see the most common things, is that these are the kids that can't get enough movement. So again, movers and shakers. So they are constantly moving in their chair, can't sit still. Maybe they have trouble sitting down for meals and activities, homework. Oh my gosh, it's a lot. It could be thrill seeking. So, you know, they can't just, you know, jump from the couch to the floor. They have to climb the tallest cabinet and then jump down. So (laughs) it's, you know, more of that thrill-seeking that um, can't get enough of that movement. It could be, you know, rocking even too. And then there's proprioception, which is knowing where your body is in space. So with this, there are oftentimes kids that, again, will go along with the movers and the shakers. They can't get enough jumping or crashing or falling on the floor. I love to play ball with my kids as part of their evaluation for occupational therapy. And I'm looking at a lot of different things. Of course, their coordination, their tracking. There's a lot that goes into catching a ball, believe it or not. But I can always tell the seekers, of proprioception seekers, because when they catch the ball, they can't just catch the ball. They have to like tackle it like they're in the NFL. You know, they got to like roll around on the floor and then and then catch it. So again, they just can't get enough of that rough and tough, that rough and tumble kind of movement. And then another component that goes into this too is called grading of movements where they just don't know where their body is in space and they don't know how strong they are or how much strength they actually use and how much they need to use their muscles to do activities. So oftentimes you see kids that are kind of like a bull in a china shop. Have you guys ever Mm -hmm. taken Mm -hmm. a kid to a store where they're touching everything and they they go to touch that breakable thing and they can't just touch it with one finger like you told them to and then it's like boom and then the thing's on the floor right yes. they just don't know their own strength they don't know how to work their body to just do it gently. Yeah. And this can also play into handwriting too, because there's oftentimes kids that will push so hard on their pencil that they are fatigued by a sentence or two. And we know that our kids have to do a lot more writing than that. So it can certainly play into the handwriting side of things too. And kind of going back to that ball example, when me playing ball with my patients is another sign that I have for this is when they go to throw the ball back to me, they can't just toss the ball back to me nicely. They have to chuck it at me. Like mm-hmm. one of those things where I'm like on guard and feel like I need a catcher smit the whole time, you know? And again, they're not doing it to be mean or anything like that. They just don't know their own strength. I used to, in assessments, like first, first time meeting with a patient, I would ask for a high five and I wouldn't like give any directive or whatever, but I could usually tell like if it was super mild and like, oh, okay, okay. But if like it broke my arm and yes. flung me across the room, I knew, okay, maybe we should talk about an OT referral here. This is, yes. this is rough. So yeah, that's always a good indicator. Yes, absolutely. Know. Great example. So what do you do if you see a kid, and I'll go back to the the thing you said on the playground of the kid who's scared of the step. So as a parent, I volunteer at my kid's school quite a bit. And if I'm out at recess and I see something, you know, instinctively, I think I'm going to be like, oh, come on, it's not that big of a deal to step here. But I'm also going, I know enough about this kind of stuff to go, that's not the proper response. So how do we handle kiddos with a sensory processing disorder when we see it happen? And I think that's a really great question. And of course, that's going to depend on the kid and their level of anxiety. Because when you have these kids that are afraid of steps or afraid of, you know, those heights and things, there's a huge anxiety component that's going along with that too. So sometimes when kids are that anxious about foods or about heights or about certain things, we're going to need that behavioral health counselor too, because they're going to have to help coach us with those things too. But in occupational therapy, they're going to work on building up that vestibular system and try to get it a little bit more integrated to get their balance more integrated, to get them used to movement. And oftentimes this is done with a swing hanging. It's a special type of swing that we have that hangs in the middle of the room. And we would tolerate, we would work on just getting the kid to tolerate getting on the swing to and no movement whatsoever, maybe set a timer and, you know, they sit there for 10 seconds and then they're done. Good job. Yay. You know, and then here's your treat or whatever. And then you would work on then moving them in a linear pattern, which is forward and back because they're typically can tolerate that just a little bit better before moving sideways and then never, never, never spin them because spinning is taking all of the vestibular system and kind of making everything kind of jumble together. And that's way too much to tolerate. It's just way overstimulating. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. The, the only thing I, you're the professional here, but the only thing I can think that we've forgotten is is visual of, of things that might set people off. Yeah. So sometimes people can be overly sensitive to lights or overly sensitive to, to visual input. So there are some kids that 
perform better in a dimly lit room. There are some kids that are avoidant of brightly lit rooms and things like that. Lighting can be very um, overstimulating for kids, especially when you think about fluorescent lighting. And thankfully Mm. with our LED lights, this is a problem that's kind of getting better, especially in the classrooms. I feel like a lot of classrooms have gotten better about this. Um, But overly bright lights, they could be more sensitive to it. And they can also be really distracted by visual things around the room. So kind of going back to my classroom example about how there's stuff all over the walls, there's stuff all over the table, there's stuff all over everywhere. Those are things that can be visually distracting. And then on the flip side of that, there are kids that really like visual input. So maybe they're flipping the light on and off, on and off, on and off, on and off, because they really (laughs) like the way that looks. Or those spinning toys that you can get at the dollar store where you push the button and it goes round and round Mm -hmm. and round and all the lights are going. There are kids that love watching that. I don't know about you, but it kind of makes me sick. But for some (laughs) kids, they just can't get enough of that. I've had some kids that would take a marble and watch it drop from the table to the floor, pick it up, watch the marble drop, over and over and over again. And oftentimes you see this with children living with autism spectrum disorder. You'll see that a lot with that, but it doesn't have to be that either. And that autism is something that we haven't really talked about either because sensory processing can also go hand in hand with autism spectrum disorders as well. And you know, earlier in the podcast, I mentioned the DSM-5 with Mm -hmm. the, the diagnostic manual. And In there, they do mention sensory processing, but it's under the autism realm. It's actually a component that's part of that diagnosis. Okay. And just to be clear, you can have sensory processing issues and not have autism spectrum disorder, but if you have an autism spectrum disorder, you often have sensory issues. That is something that is very, very common with that diagnosis. In everything that you're talking about, there's so much overlap between sensory difficulties that can develop and emotional and mental health things and just like other developmental things that can happen. Like it's really overwhelming. And, you know, even like, I I think I know, you know, quite a bit about the stuff in my realm. Um, But when I start to think about it in relationship to the stuff in your realm, I'm like, oh my gosh, how do we really know? Like, what is a parent supposed to do? Like if you've got a diagnosis and you think, okay, this is it. But what if you've missed that might be something else. Like maybe there's more to it because we haven't looked at that aspect of it. How, I, I'm not even sure what my question is because it is just, it's all of this kind of comes together and you can just see how everything interconnects. How do we make sense of that as professionals, as parents, what do we do? I would say, just don't forget about the sensory processing component. So again, you've got the big diagnosis, the real diagnosis, the ones that are the DSM-5 of the anxiety and the ADHD. <laughs> Just don't forget about the sensory processing things that can also be affecting those things too. And again, the older the child is, or the adult even for that matter, it's more about helping you understand your own body and knowing what you need to do to help yourself, you know, to be more successful. And, you know, there are some kids and adults that need movement. So, you know, you heard me talking earlier about the movers and the shakers. So telling them to sit still is never going to work. That's not going to work for them because they can't. Their sensory processing system cannot allow them to do that. In that case, we want to add movement into their day. And this can be as simple as standing up to do their homework or standing up to do their work, laying on their belly and doing it um, up on their elbows, kind of propped up that way, going to the bathroom, getting drinks more often than other kids, running errands, running around the table. I love, love, love animal walks, especially for homework and things like that. Because if they say, oh, I want a drink or I need a break, great. I want you to hop like a bunny all the way there and then crab walk all the way back. So you're really getting some of that sensory input into their bodies too. Sensory breaks are another thing that people often think about too with sensory processing. And what this is, is just giving yourself a minute to get some sensory input or to avoid some sensory input, which we're going to talk about that in just a second too. But this is typically recommended just to occur for three to five minutes every 30 to 60 minutes. So oftentimes, especially at a school, one of the things that I see is that they'll be like, oh, gosh, this kid is really sensory seeking today. I'm going to send them down to the sensory room. And they may stay down there for a good 15 minutes or so. And there's nothing wrong with having a sensory room. And that's a great thing. But that's really too long and not exactly what we need for the kids. So just kind of keeping that in mind, too, is we're not talking about big things. It could just be everybody gets up and does 25 jumping jacks. You know, there's probably more kids in the classroom or at home at the table. Mom probably needs to be doing the 25 jumping jacks, too, or dad or brother or whoever. Everybody probably needs to do it. Right. So anytime we can do it with everybody as a group, I love those strategies because then we're not 
you know, pointing or singling anybody out to. Lenny, would you mind giving us any online resources or websites or books or something that we could get more information on sensor processing disorders? Because you've said a lot of great stuff. Yeah. So some of my favorites, there's one that's called mamaot.com is one of my favorites and sensory-processing-disorder.com is another one of my favorites as well that give lots of information on symptoms and diagnoses and also what you can do um, to help too. Thank you. You said it a few minutes ago, Lene, you know, really just keeping sensory problems in mind is is important. And so like, that's really clicking for me because for everyone everywhere, like, like even just, you know, my own family, if we're in the car and we're getting restless because we've been in the car for three hours, mm-hmm. there's some sensory needs going on there. Let's get out. Let's move around. Let's jump up and down. Let's, you know, in the, in the classroom, in the family, um, you know, I can think of so many settings where just kind of tapping into those sensory needs at any age um, can be a really important part of getting re-regulated. So I think, you know, we don't have to be overwhelmed by all the confusing overlap and all the different ways we can go if we're doing the best we can with what we have and then keeping sensory in mind. I feel like we're going to be a lot more successful in whatever we're trying to, you know, handle. Absolutely. And anytime you're sedentary and you're not moving around, it's kind of like shaking up a soda or a soda can. So you're shaking it up, right? And then as soon as you stop, then it just kind of explodes, right? (laughs) And that also happens sometimes with screens too in our kids. And even though they can sit there really well and attend to the screen and, you know, play Minecraft or whatever it is that they're playing, it's the same concept. We're keeping them from getting sensory input and therefore processing sensory input. So when they're done, you often see more behaviors and things like that too. And it kind of goes along with that. You're saying that too much screen time can contribute to sensory problems. Is that what you're saying? Oh, I am. I am <laughs> saying that. And maybe a lot of other things too. But I thought that sounds like another podcast to me. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yes, indeed. But there, there also are some people that need a break from sensory input too. And that's something that I want to point out to everybody too, because sometimes, you know, it's better to give a child a place to go and hide. So like, for instance, like a little pop-up tent, I love that with those oil and water toys that they have, or even fidgets or, you know, pop mm-hmm. or anything like that, those calming kinds of things taking more of that calming approach can also be really helpful. And that's something that I often teach parents too, is sensory calming strategies. So what can we do to help bring everything down? Because you think about family gatherings, for instance, that's very overstimulating, whether it's in your house or someone else's house. So having a place for your child to go where they can kind of take a break from it, take a minute, have a minute and kind of go from there. And if you think about us as adults, we also need breaks on a regular basis. You know, you mentioned in the car. But we can take we can take them, right? Because we're adults. We can exactly. I need a break, I can step away. Kids exactly. don't necessarily have that. Yeah. And that's why we need to train them how to help themselves, is we need to help them understand what they need to do so that they can be, you know, functioning adults too. I don't know. This is probably my favorite episode, and in, 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 in I think it's because I've learned the most. Because I think through doing forty three episodes on anxiety and stuff that I'm somewhat familiar with through therapy and everything, I have learned a bunch of stuff in this episode. So I thank you very much for sharing uh, your insight into this. Your thank you for this opportunity. I love what you guys are doing. Yes, yeah, so I'm so glad we did this. It was it was wonderful to hear the you know kind of the other side of of everything that we've all been talking about. So thank you for being with us. Thank you guys for this opportunity. I love it. I love what you guys are doing. Good. Well, thank you. We appreciate that. We will put the uh, resources that Lene said in our show notes to give you some websites and stuff to look for if you want more information on that. Um, On our next episode, episode 45, we're closing in on 50 episodes, Nikki. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And almost two years of doing this. It's been fun. Um, We're talking about how parenting has changed. And that's coming up in two weeks. As always, we appreciate you listening to the episodes, sharing them with those who you think might find them beneficial. We always welcome your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. Our whole goal in starting this podcast was to start a conversation, and that conversation continues with you. 